Welcome to Carry the Load's Lessons from the Front. I'm Todd Boding, and in just a moment, I'm going to introduce you to Milton Williams, a Dallas Fire Department veteran and Carry the Load ambassador. Milton found his way to us after years of grieving for both his best friend, Vince Davis, and his lieutenant, Todd Crodel, both of whom died in the line of duty. We talk about how their deaths impacted him, the dangers of fighting fires, and some of the misconceptions of being a fireman. Carry the Load is humbled to have played a part in Milton's healing so he could continue to celebrate them and honor their sacrifice for others. I hope you enjoy our discussion as much as I did, and if you do, please make sure to share these stories with just two of your friends, because the sacrifice of such honorable men as Vince Davis and Todd Crodel should never be taken for granted. Milton Williams. Yes, sir. Good to see long you. Time, uh, long time fan, long time uh, partner with Carry the Load, long time firefighter. You're a chef. Husband, father, you got All a lot that. going on. More than I realize sometimes. So when, when did you first get involved with Carry the Load? Well, that, was, that would be 2013. 2013. Yeah. So this is what, nine years from me now? Yeah. 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 And, and yeah. What, what brought you to Carry the Load? Oh, man, that's a, that story is a, one that I really enjoy telling. Um, in 2011, August 2011, um, I lost a good close friend of mine and my officer, Lieutenant Todd Crodel, in an apartment fire over in the section of Oak Cliff in Dallas, a fire that I was fighting. And um, that broke me. You know, I, I've, I've experienced um, a lot of duty deaths before, but that one was a guy who I trained and then he became my officer. And um, like I said, that broke me. After that, I'm sitting probably a year after that, I was sitting at home. And a commercial came on WFFA Channel 8 News um, about Carrie Delote. And um, the promo that they were shooting, they showed these gentlemen, these uh, soldiers, that were walking up and down this path carrying some uh, ruck packs. Mm -hmm. And I also saw some guys carrying some heavy equipment. And at the end of that video, it said, who are you carrying? And at that point, I was feeling really, really low. That struck me, and I realized that I was carrying the weight of this guy's death, like carrying it very, very heavy on me. And um, I said, "Now I think I want to do that." And so um, that year was at Riverson Park. Uh, I gathered uh, nine of my uh, crewmates, and we went out with our firefighting gear, with our uh, tanks, uh, hose packs, and. We walked up and down that trail for about six, seven hours. And um, after that, I felt inspired. I felt I was enlightened. I felt like everything that I had been carrying since his death was starting to pull off of my shoulders. And um, realized that that was going to help heal me. Was that, was that the first time you'd experienced death as a, as a fireman? No, uh, actually two years prior. Oh, I'm sorry, not two years. Um, Nine years prior to that, I lost my best friend in the fire department in an apartment fire in the same section of Oak Cliff. And, uh, but I wasn't there when he died. I was off work that day. So, so is uh, that, I'm assuming that was the difference then is that you were there. No, that was the difference. I was there, but, uh, I was, um, I was 
yeah, I was there and I saw the whole thing. I, I actually helped rescue him out of the building. So yeah, I would say, yeah, that was the difference. When so. Lieutenant Todd Crodel, who is a, is a huge fixture now within the uh, carry the load community, you guys have done a fantastic job as nonprofit partners. Mm-hmm. Actually, I'm going to, I'm going to back up and say this. Y'all have done a fantastic job keeping his legacy going, but y'all have done a fantastic job getting your arms around the whole aspect of carry the load and what it means. I mean, you, you know, you, you zeroed in on, you know, who are you carrying? And that, that question is what I've always loved about that question is that it's also a call to action. You answered that right. call to action. Absolutely. But there was something that happened on that day that struck you different, differently than losing your best friend in a fire. And so can you take us through what happened that day that so people can get a, a sense for, you know, exactly why it had such an impact? On you? Okay. So Sunday morning, usually uh, weekends are, you know, it's usually pretty relaxed around the stations. You know, most of the um, senior staff are off uh, on the weekends. Well, I was one of the senior staff, and I happened to be at the station that day, and I was going to be driving my lieutenant uh, that morning, but he said, come to me and said, hey, we got a young guy that we want to get some training. Let's let him drive that day. Typically when, and we, 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 um, we ride on a piece of equipment called the truck. That's a truck where we do mm-hmm. rescue and extrication. Um, figured, you know, it's going to be a slow day. We'll let him drive. Uh, around about 3.30 that afternoon, we got a call to an apartment fire. Um, thinking it wasn't going to be much of anything. We were discussing how we we're going to, you know, handle ourselves when we get to this particular emergency. Um, of course, when we got there, there happened to be a fire. And, um, so myself, you, you weren't necessarily expecting a fire, even though there's a, there, even though there's an alarm. Correct. Okay. Yeah. Cause a lot of the times we get called out to a fire, there may not be a fire. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes there is that particular time there was a fire. Um, and we had some very young guys on our crew that day. So my lieutenant took the guy he had with him and took him to the roof. And I took the, another young guy. It only been about a month. I took him inside the apartment with me, um, uh, to go working on the fire. Um, and I was just about out and we heard a call for a mayday, which means that someone is trapped or someone is injured. And when you say you hear it, you get a call. Is that, over the radio? Is that just someone yelling from the building? Yeah, it's usually a call on the radio. So okay. um, there's usually one individual, they holler, mayday, 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 which means that there is uh, someone trapped, injured, imminent danger. And so we start to evacuate the, uh, the um, structure and go into rescue mode. Um, and turned out it was my lieutenant who had fallen through the roof uh, of the apartment fire where we were fighting. And he became trapped in the attic. And it took us a while to find him, but when we found him, um, he was clinging to life. Um, where it um, struck me so hard uh, is that on a normal day, if I was driving him, that would have been he and I on the roof. Um, it very well could have been me. Um, that was the person that fallen through the roof. So is there a little bit of 
survivor's guilt that comes in there? I think at times it does. Um, yeah, I think at times it does. Yeah. It's, it's, it's actually a, a very common theme. You know, you talk to certain people. I mean, I've done several uh, episodes where, um, where people have said something similar. You know, it could have been me. It, it should have been me. I thought it was going to be me. Why wasn't it me? Um, and so that, that explains a lot, you know, why it struck you so differently. I've, I've never heard you tell that story before. I, I knew that, that he was your Lieutenant and you obviously had a great deal of respect for him. Um, I knew, I know some of my Marines probably would have wished I'd fallen through the, the roof of a, a building, but, uh, you obviously had him, you had, you had a great deal of respect for him differently than, uh, uh, than just some guy who's signing off on your performance evaluation. Right. So, and to expound on that, it's not just a great respect, he was my friend. Uh, we worked together for about 12 years. And um, typical morning in the fire station, you know, we get to, we have to be at the fire station. Uh, shift change starts at uh, 6.30. And we go into action about 7 a.m. Well, Lieutenant Kroll and I, we made it a, a habit of getting to the station around about 5.30. Get there, we... Start a pot of coffee, which firefighters do every single morning. We sit around and we talk about anything. Well, between he and I, we talked a lot about sports, football, baseball. We love baseball. And so that became a morning routine. Uh, that was, uh, he died on August 11, 2011. Okay. Don't forget that. I'm sorry. August the 14th, 2011. Okay. So um, the days following his death, there was a huge void missing for me. I still get to work at 5.30. I go in, I start a pot of coffee, but Lieutenant Crotto wasn't there. And we weren't there to talk about football or talk about baseball or talk about our children or, you know, just shoot the breeze as we like to call it. And days after that, I just, you know, you expect to see somebody walk around that corner and some mornings I would expect to see him coming and he wasn't coming. So when you when you found him, um, what what was going through your mind? When I initially found him, I thought he was just stuck. Because when we found him, he had tried to kick through the ceiling because he fell from the roof into the attic, and he tried to kick his way through the ceiling, and we saw his legs hanging out. So I thought, oh, he's just stuck, or Matter of fact, I didn't even know it was him at first. I thought it was somebody else. And um, I said, okay, he's stuck. Let's get him out. Um, unfortunately, he was not only stuck, but he was clinging to life. So that was, um, I mean, you know, when, whenever you paint a picture like that, there's all kinds of <clears throat> thoughts that, that go through your head. And, and I know that you were actually trained as a paramedic as well. Yeah. So. Seeing life-threatening situations like this, you were you were used to it. I mean, you'd seen it before. You, but this is obviously. I mean, is, is there a way to compartmentalize the fact that this is a um, not just a a senior uh, man in the fire department, but a friend? Is there a way to compartmentalize that as a paramedic? So you try to. 
I mean, we, we when we have emergencies, we go into automatic mode because mm-hmm. we know what to do. But when it's somebody that you love, care about, somebody you know personally, um, sometimes that goes out the window, and you're trying to figure out what do I need to do right now. Is uh, give you an example. Um, when we realized that he was that he wasn't just trapped, that he was barely clinging to life, and I keep saying that because. That, that is the manner in which we found him. Um, had to go retrieve equipment to get him out. And as I'm going down to our um, apparatus to grab the equipment I needed, I couldn't figure out what I needed to get. Because now, your, your, your head was... Because my head was absolutely spinning. Um, and at one point when we finally got the right equipment, got the equipment started because when we had problems with the equipment it wouldn't like a chainsaw we had it wouldn't stay cranked oh had to go get another one go back up now he is trapped in the in the uh in the attic he's uh tangled up in lots of wires lots of cables lots of may have been electrical wires but at that point i wasn't thinking well i'm getting ready to cut through some electrical cables i just started cutting and whatever i could cut i was cutting and um you know, so we could get him out. And, you know, once we got him out and we, you know, had him um, down inside the apartment where we were able to work on him, I was completely exhausted as my adrenaline was going probably a thousand miles an hour. And there were so many guys around him and all I was wanting to do was just to make sure we could get him up, stand him up, walk him outside until he could get some fresh air. Not knowing that he wasn't going to get up and walk out. That's heavy. So did he pass there at the scene? No, I don't believe so. Um, he still had life in him when we got him to the ambulance and got him to the hospital. And at that point, we found out probably about an hour or two later that he didn't make it. So you said you were broken as a result of that. Um, you know, and one of the things that, that we say at, at Carry the Load is, you know, we want to celebrate the lives of, of Lieutenant Crodel and, and all those who have made such a huge sacrifice so that others may enjoy the freedoms that we enjoy. But you can't celebrate their life until you until a healing takes place. How long did it take you to heal through participation in carry the load, walking with others, talking about it, purging yourself uh, emotionally? So um, this happened August 2011. I didn't see the actual video of carry the load until 2013. So for two years you were dealing with this. Pretty close to two years I was dealing with this. And, and, and just to give you exact, uh, an example how broken I was, when my best friend died, I, was, I reconciled his death um, uh, in my own way. Mm-hmm. But when, um, and I, I can't sit here and tell you why I didn't feel this way toward my best friend to, other than the fact that I was there, you know, when my lieutenant passed. Mm-hmm. But um, I was broken to the point that I didn't know if I wanted to do this job again. And at that time, I think I had, um, what, 2011? 
Uh, close to 25 years on. Yeah. Okay. So, so let's start the math here. When, mm. when did you join Dallas Fire? Or when did you become a fireman? So I became a firefighter in December of 1985. 85. Mm. And then, um, um, have you always been in the Dallas Fire Department? Or had you always been, or did you start with another department? First? No, I've always only with the Dallas Fire Department. Okay. So okay. I did I did a little over 33 years with Dallas Fire. Uh, certainly wasn't a job that I was I, I always wanted to do. I kind of actually got um, forced into it by my older brother. Okay. I needed a job. I was at home. I was a college dropout and living at home with my mom. Where, my where are you from originally? I'm, I'm originally from the Panhandle part of Texas. Outside of Amarillo. Are you really? Yes. Never seen you in a pair of boots. Oh, trust me. I've got plenty. <laughs> I know you do. If you're from <laughs> up in the panhandle, you absolutely do. Yes. So, yeah. and then how'd you get to Dallas? So, uh, my mom moved here. She was a nurse. Okay. Um, and, so, you've um, got that in your in your blood. Right. Okay. So, in the uh, 1973, I believe it was, we relocated to Dallas. I was 11 years old. Okay. Um, trust me, I did not want to live in Dallas. <laughs> I'm a country boy. But uh, Dallas grew on me, so now it's home. There's something about yeah. this place. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so uh, yeah. where in where specifically in the Panhandle? There's a small town called Memphis, right off Highway 287. Memphis, Texas. Yes, I'll be darned. Okay, so so you move here in 1973, which means you're about ten, about ten years old. Yeah. Um, not that I'm trying to out your age or anything, yeah. but uh, I mean, for crying out loud, you're older than me and you look younger than me, so yeah. I, I don't know. I mean. Let me have my shot there. Yeah. So you're you move here um, when you're about ten years old. Dallas becomes your 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 new home. Obviously, you said you dropped out of college, which is something that many of us do that end up serving. Yeah. Um, what were you intentional or what were you initially going to school to do? I wanted to be an architect. I wanted to be an architect. Yeah. Really. Yeah. So I wanted to build buildings instead of putting you know instead of going and putting the uh, fires out. Okay. <laughs> Okay, why on earth, what what took you to that route? I mean, why'd you want to be an architect? Well, my brother uh, used to draw. Okay. And my brother was everything to me. And um, he drew he, anything. If it was a car, a person, a bike, whatever he drew. And so I followed in his footsteps. Older brother, I'm assuming. Older brother, yeah, he's three years older than me. So uh, he'd draw, I'd draw. You know, he'd play football, I'd go play football. You know, well, I got drug into football, but I wanted to play, you know, at some point I wanted to play, but I got drug into that as well. And so, um, yeah, I'm going to guess you probably were not a quarterback. You're too damn big to be a quarterback. No, I wasn't a quarterback. I was actually a defensive end until, no, actually I was, a, I, I was, believe. I was a wide receiver. Okay. Cause right. I was only, I was only coming out of high school. I weighed 170 pounds. Wait, what? Yes. How tall were you? I was probably 6'3". 6'3", 170 pounds? Yeah. yeah. Man, you had me by about five, inch and yeah. five inches, and I had you by five pounds. Well, I ended up on the defensive line, but there was this thing about, you know, you got to be gritty. And I wasn't gritty. Okay. I, I didn't want to hit. Really? I, got, I ended up getting moved to safety. Okay. I, got, I, I found my home at safety. <laughs> okay. Well, you got to do some hitting at safety, too. Yeah, you know, just not a whole lot, you know. Where where'd you grow up in Dallas? I grew up in Oak Cliff. Okay. Mm -hmm. Whereabouts? Um well my mom moved a lot, so I was all over. Okay. Yeah. So mostly the southern part of Oak Cliff. But they call it we call it South Oak Cliff. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. my uh, my dad actually grew up uh, uh in Keys Park. 
No, it will. Yeah. Yeah. A couple, a couple years ago, though. Yeah. That, that was back when there were no, by the time I was uh, old enough to, uh, to know what was what and, and where, Keys Park had become a lot of uh, ball fields. Mm-hmm. And so the first time he takes me to a game there, he, he says, says, man, never thought I'd see ball fields here. This is where we did all our hunting growing up. Right. So there was just nothing but nothing but woods. So you, um, you know, you, I, I kind of derailed us a little bit. You, you were, you were starting to talk about your best friend um, when um, uh, when he passed away. And this is, is this somebody you grew up with or somebody you became good friends with in the. Yeah. So we became good friends in the fire service. Okay. And, um, and I was actually asking you about the ability to compartmentalize, um, certain things, uh, as a paramedic and well, actually, you know, you're, you're talking about, uh, you were feeling a little broken more, more so than when your when your friend had died before I cut you off and sent us down another path. So I apologize. No worries. So, um, what, what was it over those two years? I mean, when you say you were just broken, I want to go back to that because this is a really important point for, um, for people who've never been to carry the load but have, may have had a, uh, a similar experience to yours. Define what, it, what you mean by you were broken for those two years. So, um, excuse me, <clears throat> go back a little bit. When, when, my, when my best friend died, like mm-hmm. I said, I was able to reconcile his death in my own way. Um, thought he, you know, he had a purpose and he served that purpose. Um, <clears throat> my lieutenant died. Um, I don't know. And maybe I was still carrying some of, you know, the weight of Vince's is Vince Davis is his name. He was a former Olympian, um, great track athlete. So I may have been carrying some of the pain of his death. Uh, like I said, we were very close. Uh, and like I said, the lieutenant died. Um, and when we said I was broken and I was just this is that I didn't feel like I wanted to do this job again. I, I didn't feel I had, uh, in 2000, um, I lost my first wife. She was 38. I had two girls with her. And, um, two years after that, my best friend dies. And subsequently I started having other losses, you know, that were none related to the fire department, but mm-hmm. Nonetheless, and so it may have just been accumulation of all of that, but then again, like I said, with um, Lieutenant Crodel, I was there, I saw everything happen, I helped rescue him, um, and um, I just remember sitting at home one day saying, "I don't think I want to do this job again. I don't think I want to do this. I'm tired of losing people. Um, I'm tired of losing friends." Um, and so, I always say that when you go when you go into a fire. Uh, guys, you know, we say this, we always hear this um, term, uh, go-getters. Mm-hmm. And trust me, there are some that are on the department that are go-getters. And uh, being a firefighter was more than to me than just fighting fire. It was about serving the community. Uh, when you go into a fire, for me, I had a sense of what I call healthy fear. And, and if you, I need to explain that I can. Because... Fire is a living, breathing thing. It's yes. nothing to play around with. Got to so respect it. You got to respect it. And so that's, that's what I mean by having a healthy fear. Sure. I knew I knew how to do my job very well. And trust me, I've been in fires. I've been burned before. Um, 
and of I've come out. So that's healthy fear because I do my job and I do well and I don't take chances. So after Lieutenant Crotel's uh, incident, I was afraid. I was afraid of leaving my kids. I was afraid to leave my wife because um, I remarried. I was afraid of leaving the people that I cared about and that cared about me. And um, I was, um, what do you call it, um, hesitant. Times we, and not, not, about a few weeks after his death, we had another fire, house fire, a torn down structure, and we had to get on the roof. And even though we had new protocols in place, I was hesitant. I can understand why, though. I mean, so if that was only three weeks later, you find yourself on a roof, and the roof is the very thing that you associate his death with. Yeah, that's okay. I, I mean, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. And so, uh, I mean, I'm assuming you, you faced the fear and you dealt with it, or was it something that lingered through the rest of your career? I think at times it did linger. But I, um, I think say I, I want to say I was always cautious, but I think I became more cautious. And and, and to give you an example, um, Lieutenant Crotel's um, incident wasn't the first incident we had experienced that year. Um, several months earlier, we had another firefighter fall through a roof and was severely burned, and uh, he was an experienced firefighter. He lived. Fortunately for him, when he fell through the roof. He fell right where the firefighters were attacking the fire. And they mm. were able to rescue him and drag him out. And uh, he, was, he was burned uh, significantly over his body. Uh, but he recovered and went back to work. However, when he went back to work, it took him a while before he went back on the roof. He, sure. He went into a new position where he didn't have to go on the roof. So uh, for me, three weeks after my lieutenant um, incident, we have this fire and we have to go on the roof. Now my new Lieutenant was a go-getter and he was raring to go. And I, I was trying to pull him back because like I said, we, we had new protocols of a uh, roof extrication or roof, um, roof procedures, if you will. Mm-hmm. And so wanted to make sure that we adhere to those guidelines. Uh, but he was raring to go and, um, I knew better. I told him I knew better. And we didn't completely follow those protocols. And when our chief showed up at the end, at the scene, um, you know, we got a chewing. And were you, were you kind of, you're getting, you know, like we'd get locked up or something like that. Were you just kind of looking at him out of the corner of your eye going, see, this is what I was trying to tell you. Yeah. And I got, I got the brunt of that because I was the senior, I was the senior guy there. Even though and he was outranked you. Even though he outranked me. But I had probably 15 years on him. And my chief officer told me, Milt, you know better. And, which I did. And so, like I said, and I was hesitant to get on that roof, um, not because of what happened to the lieutenant, but also because of the, uh, the condition of that uh, structure. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we were able to get up there, do our jobs, and get off. So that, that's, that's actually a very interesting yeah. topic that, mm-hmm. that we, could, we could go down that, that rabbit trail for a while. But mm-hmm. how, how did the relationship between the two of you progress after that, or did it? Well, <clears throat> to this day, we're very good friends. Okay, so that's he, good. He has a wife and two girls. 
similar to me. Mm-hmm. Well, I have four kids, but I have two of my own. Right. Um, and uh, I felt a sense that I needed to look after him because I did not want to have to look at his wife and his kid's face and say, yeah, this happened and this why it happened. So you put some of that timid, timid nature aside and said, we got to do it right. We got to do it right. And was he, I mean, you know, a, a good, a good leader at that point will assess things and say, it doesn't matter how heavy my collar is compared to yours. If you're right, I need to acknowledge that. And it sounds like he did. Absolutely. That's awesome. I mean, that's, that, that's a, that's a great, that's a great story in and of itself because there are, there are so many situations that happen like that. I mean, the fact that he's a go-getter, that's good because he's going to be pulling, you know, he probably pulled you a little bit out of your comfort zone because of your experiences. But then the fact that you can kind of counterbalance that and say, you know, Hey, not too far because I know the result if you're not careful. I mean, that's, that's a good story. And that's one that, that I think a lot of people don't understand when life and death is is not at stake. And, you know, I mean, I've, I think we've all got countless stories like that in the business world um, where that happens. And there's nothing that, if the stakes aren't high enough, everybody just wants to say, I, I outrank you and we're going to do what I say do. So. And oh, trust me, there's been some incidents where I've, you know, we've had senior guys at the scene and a, an officer comes in and he wants to do a job a certain way and we know better. Mm-hmm. Someone asked me this the other day about it and uh, uh, they said, um, if someone was doing something wrong, how would you handle it no matter their rank? And I'd say, you know, tell them, look, we're not going to do this. I, I don't care who you are. We're not going to do it this way and, and, and I'll suffer the consequences later. Um, but sometimes, and you may have to, you know, somebody else over there and say, Hey, we need to relieve this person. Now, listen, I'm not saying that the fire department has those individuals that do that, but sometimes, you know, in an incident, um, there's always more than one way to skin a cat, if you will. Sure. Right. Sure. Um, and then there's protocol, you know, and, um, there are times we've had individuals that want to operate or skirt, I'm going to say operate outside of protocols, but. They want to skirt the procedures, if you will. If that, I think that's a better way to put it. And um, um, I have a lot of respect for those who go by the book. And we say, "Well, I don't want, I don't want to work with somebody who's always by the book." Well, after you've experienced what I've experienced, you understand why those are strictly by the book. Well, and the the book is to me the book is like a yeah the, the way you said it. A lot of people here buy the book. And it's a negative thing. The book was written as a stepping off point. The book was written as a guide. But it can never take the place of a human being looking at something and assessing it and saying, okay, the book got me to this point. But the book didn't really bring up this part of it. So now I got to use my, you know, my own uh, intelligence here to, to maneuver you know, through something. And I think some people, it's, it's easy to just throw the book out. Because then you don't, then you're not accountable to anything. So, um, I, I agree with you. I mean, you know, the, you know, by the book is, is very important. Yeah. Now, sometimes <clears throat> I'm going to say, you know, you know, you hear always the rules are meant to be broken. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and trust me, there are some times the rules were broken. Sure. Um, I was off duty uh, when, uh, one day. This was probably around about 1993, 94. Mm-hmm. Um, not far from my in-law's home over in Oak Cliff. Okay. It was a structure fire. I was off duty. And I'm driving by and I see this house burning and someone yells out, there's someone in the house. So automatically, I have no firefighting gear. I have no um, air tank. And I jumped out of my car. I ran to the front door and my wife was sitting in the passenger seat and she's yelling at me not to go in. But I'm in automatic mode. Sure. So I ran to the front door. I got down on my hands and knees, which is what we're taught. And I start crawling into the house. Now there's smoke billing out of the front door. There's fire leaping out of one of the windows. And I'm yelling to see if someone's in the house. I could hear the fire, the sirens from the fire engines coming, but I thought I need to do this. However, I didn't make it all the way in. I got pushed back by the smoke and the flames and I came out. Now, is that the way to do it? Not really. Um, if I had my firefighting gear and if we were, if I was on duty, we would have gone in search and rescue, but we also would have had um, means of backup with us in case the fire got out of, well, fire's already out of control, but in case it got to a point where we needed to um, evacuate and start fighting the fire. So there are times that we do go in and we go into search and rescue mode before we actually start attacking the fire, but Mm -hmm. we do have backup modes behind us. So um, So that was a a rule. Close the loop on that story, though. What happened? So I'm saying that I actually end up going, having to back out because mm-hmm. I knew it was too dangerous to be in there with no type of protective gear right. on. Yeah, the, the smoke would have hit your lungs. The smoke would have hit my lungs. The gases, the heat kill you before the flames do. Okay, so you you made a, an honest attempt to, to do what was right. Then you hear the, sir, the sirens coming, assess the situation. You back out, um, which all sounds to me like something that I think um, – that I would hope a lot of people would do. So did the, uh, did your brothers get there and, and were they able to, to save this person? Well, the person was not even at home. So they were able to put the fire out and save the structure. But there was, but there was no one home. So your wife was probably not real happy when she found that. Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I, I, I give you full credit. Yeah. I mean, because you know, that's, that is, the perception of firefighters, they go into the danger. Yeah. That's the perception of the military. We go into the danger. And I say perception, although it's really a reality mm-hmm. because that's, that's the way we're trained. We're not trained to, to sit on the sideline and, and observe. We're trained to identify a threat and neutralize that threat. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's obviously what you were doing. So what would you say is one of the big misperceptions about firefighters and maybe just firefighting in general? Oh, wow. Let me think about that for a second. I probably would think, um, say that, um, that we rush in without thinking. Without ah. doing, without knowing. But I hear it a lot. This is, well, and y'all seem like y'all just so unorganized when y'all get to a scene. And I said, on the contrary, I call it organized chaos. 
That's exactly what I call it. You know the term Chinese fire drill? Yeah. <laughs> so that's sometimes what it looks like, you know, if you will, if you know what that term, if you know what that term means. But I'm going to have to go back and study uh, the origin of that. But it's, it's one of, it's, it's at, at a, at a live fire scene, each and every individual at that fire knows what they're supposed to be doing. And trust me, you may have, uh, just say on a single arm uh, fire, which is what we call a single arm, is that you, you have... Is that one station or one truck? That's, that's actually a multiple stations, but you, you'll have six pieces of equipment. You'll have three engines, you have two trucks, and you have a fire chief. So a single alarm fire is composed of six pieces of, of, of equipment. equipment. And, and, that, and that will involve multiple stations. It may involve three, four stations. So, so what, okay, so what are the different levels? You've got, you know, single alarm and... You, you know. have all the way up to six alarms. So you okay. have one alarm, two, three, four, five, six. And okay. then, of course, after that, you have what they call signal one seven, which is which means that that's, that's the call to off-duty personnel, which that's only happened a few times in, the, uh, in my history or in okay. my career, the fire department, when you have off-duty personnel coming in. So, I mean, that's like catastrophic. That's, that's like 9-11 type. Absolutely. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so is there anything, I know this may sound like a stupid question, but is there anything below a single alarm or is there always six pieces of equipment at a minimum that are going to show up? So when a fire call comes in, if it's involving a structure or if it's involving a large grass fire mm-hmm. or a large tanker, something like that, that would be something that's bigger than normal. Okay. Uh, you will initially get a one alarm response three engines, two fire trucks. And the difference is, is that when people always say, oh, I saw a fire truck today. Well, an engine, they carry water, they carry the hose, the tack lines. Fire truck was one with the big ladders on the back of them. And they carry equipment. uh, And um, they have the big ladder. And, of course, the chief, he shows up in the Suburban, and he has all types of equipment, logistics, logistics. uh, stuff on his uh, vehicle. Okay, so yeah, you, you know, you were talking about um, the the misperception is that you just you get there and you rush right in. Right. And you said something earlier. I wanted to 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 kind of uh, talk about, and that was when when Lieutenant Crodel, the fire where he passed. You said that if I understood the way you were describing it. You're really, it was almost as if y'all don't show up with a specific plan. You have a playbook was, was where my mind was going. And based on what you assess, you call a play. Right. It's probably a pre-rehearsed. It's probably, um, I mean, you know, everybody, like you said, everybody has a place to go and everybody knows where they're going. But it's like, you know, we're going to call Red Dog 35 on, on two or whatever the case may be. And that's what you're, you're assessing it before you call that play. Is that correct? Right. So, for example, um, this is a two-story apartment complex, and it's a building composing of a number of structures. And what we were going to be faced with was being able to get close enough to that particular structure so that we could deploy certain equipment. So that's what we were discussing in route to the fire. When we, when we realized that we actually had a fire, uh, a working fire, uh, we were talking about where we were going to place our equipment, 
how we were going to deploy it and uh, and make entry. And, of mm-hmm. course, our fire chief, when we get there, he's going to actually give us the exact orders of what he wants us to do. But we actually have a plan in our head uh, before we get there, just in case he's not there. Because mm-hmm. a lot of times our fire chief won't be there before we get there. So, uh, and with our lieutenant being on the truck equipment, he may be the ranking officer who's going to be giving everybody instructions. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and if you will, so let's just say we have a structure fire. Uh, uh, let's just say a house fire. Okay. Single, single, single family dwelling, one story. We get there. The first arriving engine crew is going to pull up. He's going to report out with what he has. So we call that a size up. Um, and they do that so that everybody that's coming has an idea of what's going on before they get there. Okay. Second engine, second incoming engine has got to stop at a fire hydrant and bring them water. Even though they have 800 gallons of water on the fire, on the fire engine, they're going to need more. How fast does that 800 gallons go? Oh boy. I bet you it goes within two or three minutes. Yeah. Okay. Um, now I couldn't give the specific GPMs that are coming out of those, those little bit quiet, but tell me, I'll let you know it's coming out fast and in a hurry. Uh, so Second income engine stops to get water. Um, there's four guys on each equipment, right? Okay. So that first engine, they're going to deploy um, fire attack lines. They're going to say, let's just say engine 26, which is the station where we were assigned. Engine 26 is out. We got a one-story flame, a one-story frame. Um, we got fire coming out of the roof. Engine 26 is passing command, which means that the next person come, the next crew comes in, they're going to assume command. And engine 26 is going to make a quick attack. So engine 26 is out, one-story frame, a lot of fire coming out of the roof. We're passing command, make a quick attack. Second income engine, bring us water. So then second income engine, they stop the hydrant, they bring water. The truck company, my lieutenant, where we were, truck 26 is out. Truck 26 is assuming command. So now my, my, my lieutenant is the incident commander, myself and other individual, we, um, he tell us, hey, I'm going to want you guys to go to the roof if we have to go to the roof. So then we'll make a decision who's going to go to the roof. Another guy's going to go, and he's going to grab equipment to help the guys on the inside. So in the middle of all that, there's two other guys that are deploying another attack line. They're the backup just in case something goes down that we're not expecting. So they're going to be part of the rescue crew and then so forth and so on. Other, other companies show up, and they are deployed as they're needed. And there's protocols for them as well. So when you talk about going to the roof, I mean, that, it sounds like there's, you've always got somebody on the roof, but it sounds like that's the most dangerous place. What is, what is the purpose of going to the roof? So, um, and as far as I said, it is the most dangerous place to be because there's always, un, uh, there's always hidden dangers right. in a structure fire. Um, when you're on the roof, Fire burns up, yeah. not down. So the purpose of going to the roof is if there are guys inside, there's they're they're definitely in imminent danger. Sure, because um, there could be flashovers. That's where um, superheated gases catch fire, and it basically it just flashes from one point to another point. Yeah, but it also blows up. That's called a backdraft. Yeah, yeah. So um, how to alleviate? Um, Flashovers and backdrafts, um, crews are sent to the roof to cut a hole because smoke, heat, and gases. Gotcha. Relieve go some up. of the pressure. Right. So, and um, we cut a hole in the roof so we could evacuate that um, that danger. Okay. 
So you were, you were talking earlier about, um, about something that made me think, did you ever see the movie, uh, gangs of New York? No, I have not ever seen that. I've, I start watching and I always stop. I, yeah. It's, it's a good movie. It really is. But there, you know, it, it I'm, I'm pretty sure it was gangs of New York, you know, where they, um, uh, where, where they have competing, you know, fire departments and, yeah. you know, so back in the, um, you know, I'm sure I'm giving you history that you already know, but, but back in the day when fire departments were not uh, part of the municipalities, they were actually privately owned. And so the, the, the oh, that's a new one. Uh, yeah. The, and so I don't know who owned it, but, um, they would show up and sometimes two competing fire departments would show up and they, they were, uh, they would basically blackmail the, the homeowners into paying them so they'd put out the fire. Well, sometimes they never even got to that because they they were competing with each other. They'd get into fisticuffs in the middle of the street. And if, if you if you've not seen or studied any of that, it is unbelievable that we were ever. I mean, because you know, I'm listening to the way that you're describing it now. You know, an engine twenty six, and we do this, and we do. I mean, that, it's just like so precise and by order. You got to go back and, and research some of that because it is the craziest stuff I've ever seen. I think I will, and it's what's, what's ironic about that is is that um, the city is laid out in districts. Okay, so you know how you have District One all the way to District Ten, maybe District Nine. I can't remember now, but because um, uh, I'm retired, <laughs> <laughs> you don't have but to know that anymore. When a fire call comes in, and it's say if it's at the a, a certain section of our district. Well, you have a station over here and then you may have a station three miles away. So, and they're going to get that call as well. So, and, and this is just the reality. When that fire call, call comes in. You may have two fire engines racing to that scene to be first because they want to be the one to get there and put the fire out. And that's quite a bit competitive. But but at least you guys aren't going to blows in the middle of the street while somebody's trying to negotiate with the homeowner what they're going to pay him to put the fire out. I'm no, I don't you, think that's well. It was a dark time in American <laughs> history, but you you I actually when I saw that I went and started researching right. it, and I, again I think it was in that movie. But I have seen, um, you know, as a student of history, I've seen it in other places, right? And it's it's just not our finest moment. But it's good to see that the fire department, although still competitive, right. has the you know the interest of the homeowners at heart. Hence your reason for going into that uh, that one structure. And you know, um, the city of Dallas um, is one of those departments where we do what we call interior attacks. And there's there some there's some departments that do not do interior attack. Interior they were, attacks. That means they go into the structure that's burning and mm -hmm. put the fire out from the inside. Okay. Now you have some municipalities around the city of Dallas that. that that's uh, the, the structure is not worth life. Mm -hmm. It said, let it burn and we will put it out from the outside. Mm -hmm. um, but we are an aggressive fire department, progressive and aggressive uh, to where we enter the structure. And most, in most large municipalities, that is the way they um, uh, approach um, structure fires. They go in and they put them out from the inside. And that's and that's how the city of Dallas is. And that's how the city of Dallas is. But would you say that most big cities are like that? I'd probably say every last one of them that way. Okay. Um, but then you have smaller municipalities, um, and I won't call any of those out. But mm -hmm. the, uh, one of the communities that I lived in, I house 
four blocks from me burned to the ground because they decided, hey, we're not going in here. Two-story house. We're going to just deploy our uh, our attack lines from the outside, and we're just going to protect the exposure and make sure nothing else burns down. I'm assuming there were no people in there at that point. Uh, you would be correct. Okay, so, the, so they were able to verify that before they said, you know, we're not going to risk our firefighters' right. lives. Okay. Now, I'm saying that those guys wouldn't go in if somebody was in there. They, they definitely would go in. Mm-hmm. But uh, if it's uh, if it's just a structure burning, nobody's in, no imminent danger, they'll let it burn. They'll put it. They'll just put it out from the outside. Correct. So, so I want to hear. You know, we've 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 touched on you know a couple of your, um, couple of instances that happened to you that are on one extreme end of the spectrum. What would you, uh, if I ask you, what is the most gratifying? You know, can can you point to one of the most gratifying moments as a fireman, uh, as a firefighter? Could you easily identify that? Oh yes, I actually have a couple. So um, I was a paramedic for 13 years of my 33 years. I was a paramedic. Um, but a guy had a heart attack, and um, he was unconscious and not breathing when we reached him, and we had to perform CPR on him. We got him to the hospital and we brought him back. Um, so that's very gratifying, and he lived to tell about it. Um, and he was very grateful. We come to visit every single holiday. And bring us um, Christmas dinner. Did he really? Absolutely. He did that until he actually ended up passing away from old age. Uh, he was in his 50s when that happened. I want to say he probably died um, in his mid to late 70s. So we we got to see him 20-some-odd years. Um, and, uh, of course, bringing life into the world. I've been able to deliver a number of babies. Um, Have you really? New Year's Eve. had to um, ride the ambulance. And uh, I had recently became a father myself uh, a few months earlier. And um, New Year's Eve, we had a lady who was about to it was deliver. And we thought, okay, we'll get her to the hospital and, you know, get her into labor and delivery and, we'll deliver, and they'll deliver the baby. But that baby was not going to wait. And we ended up delivering that baby in the back of the ambulance as we were driving to the hospital. And I was able to carry that baby out of the ambulance into the hospital. Oh my God, that yeah. is so cool. Yeah. I mean, that is, were you able to watch your children's birth? I mean, were you, were you, were you there? Oh yeah. I is was that there. not one of the most remarkable? I mean, it, you, when you think about, <clears throat> listen, I know people, you know, people, they don't believe in God. They don't, you know, they, yeah. whether they're agnostic, atheist, you cannot witness the birth of, especially of your own child and not feel like there has to be a supreme being. I mean, I personally can't. Yeah. Because that is one of the coolest things, you know, it just, the 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 head kind of, you know, it's a little raisin that it pops out into a yeah. grape. I mean, that's just cool. Well, and yeah. you got to you got to give birth to to several, well, not give birth, that sounded like you did it, but, but yeah. that well, is cool. The mother does all the work. We, we you <laughs> know, we just catch it. Well, yeah. good so. catch. <laughs> but um, uh, it's interesting you say that. I, I, I saw my, my baby girl delivered at a cesarean. Uh-huh. Uh, I would, you know, there were times when they would allow the father to, you know, assist in the delivery. I don't think I'd want to do that. And no, I didn't want to do that either. But um, she was she was delivered cesarean, and um, I was so excited watching that whole procedure that um, I forgot about my wife. <laughs> 
<laughs> so, <laughs> and um, I had to be reminded my mom that my wife was still there because I followed <laughs> once she was delivered, followed her over to the table where they do all the you know all of their um, measurements and whatnot, battle statistics, and um, someone said, you know, your wife is calling you over there. I never heard her calling me. <laughs> oh <my laughs> It's hysterical. I was too enthralled what was going on over at the table with my daughter. Well, let's let's hope yeah. she didn't remember that. Let's hope she was under anesthesia at that point, huh? She remembered. She remembered. Of course she did. <laughs> wow. Okay. So you spent 13 years as a paramedic, and and I mean, I those are two two really unbelievably cool stories. Yeah. Um. You know the and I I applaud the gentleman that he remembered y'all every year. Because not everyone does that. And so, you know, you, you obviously saw a lot of things as a paramedic. To me, that is one of the most unsung. People just don't realize. I mean, those guys get paid nothing. And yet, they are facing, not necessarily, the, the, they're not necessarily fa- facing danger. Although sometimes we know that that can be the case. But they are facing death. At, at every turn. And that's, I, I've always looked at that and thought, man, I don't know that I could do, I mean, you know, I've, I've got a, a very, I'm able to compartmentalize things pretty easily, but that just seems like, was it depressing? I mean, it seems like that would be one of the more depressing things that you could do. Is to. It just, just, uh, you're around negative things yeah. all the time. Yeah. Now you've got a couple of great stories there, and maybe that's what what puts things in perspective. So, I start. We started talking the story about you know me becoming a firefighter, and mm-hmm. it was a job that was available. Mm-hmm. I had no idea what this job was about. I just knew that when I saw what they were going to pay me, I said, "Oh yeah, I want to do this." <laughs> and so, um, um, I knew nothing about how we worked. You know, the twenty four mm-hmm. hours on and forty eight hours off. Um, I knew that we had to race to a scene and put a fire out and going through the academy is when I started learning everything. Well, not everything, but a good portion about what it took to be a firefighter. And cause my, my idea was I was going to go to the fire department and um, I was going to work there for a few years and then I was going to do something else. Mm-hmm. And um, I realized that I liked what I did. Now, and it's not just fighting fires cause fighting fires, like I said, it was a healthy fear of fighting fire, but being a paramedic, mm-hmm. you know, being able to help somebody in their time of need. It's in, in, you know, when somebody's structure is on fire, I don't get, I, I don't get gratification of saying, oh, wow, I just put a fire out. I get gratification of saying, I just saved this person's house. Because there's times that we're not able to save it, and they lose everything. And there's no, there's no gratification in somebody losing all of their stuff. Right. So, um, Helping somebody in their time of need, whether it's being a paramedic, whether it's, um, you know, it's not this get the cat out of the tree thing, <laughs> but, um, that's where I thought you were going to go when I was asking you about the misperceptions. No, that is a, trust me, we've had those incidents. We've had them. We've had uh, uh, those incidents, but, um, um, this is a quick story. We get a phone, we get a call three, four o'clock in the morning. It's February. It is super cold outside and the wind is blowing. 20, 30 miles an hour and gusting at 40, 50 miles an hour. And um, a little old lady called us and she said, there's something in my attic 
uh, and um, I'm afraid it's going to come down into the house. Um, can you guys help me get it out? And so we go up into the attic, two of us go up into the attic, and um, we're looking around. We don't see anything. But we could hear this noise, and it is making this loud screech. And it turns out it's her turbines. They're just spinning in the ball bearings. They've gone bad. And it's making this god-awful noise. And so we got up on the roof. We took a trash bag and tied it around it, stopped it. And, um, and then we sat there and talked to her for about another 10 minutes because she lived there alone. Yeah. And um, she was so thankful. And, um, of course, the next day she come by the station or the next year we were, she come by the station, she brought us cookies. And we had that happen a lot where someone is thankful for what we've done for them. They come by and they want to reward us. But our reward for us is that we were able to help somebody. And that's one of another one of the stories. I have a lot of stories, but there's those ones I'm telling you now. Those are the ones that are in my head and I can bring them up, you know, without having to think long about them. Well, but I, I think too, the story you just told about this woman, she lives there by herself. You, that was healthy for her. I mean, that, that, that human interaction, she probably doesn't get it the way she used to. And, you know, that's, that's one of the, one of the really unfortunate aspects of what ha- what's happened during COVID. Um, I mean, we're social animals. We, we need this. Yes, we do. And, you know, you probably gave, you, you probably breathed a, a little fresh air of life into her just by spending those 10 minutes. She probably thought that was the kindest thing anyone had done for her in quite some time. Now, I personally, I would have taken WD-40 up there because, I mean, you know, the there's a reason for that wind turbine. But that's, yeah. we'll, we'll talk about that later. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, all right, let me, let me shift gears a little bit here. <clears throat> so, you get involved in Carry the Load in, in 2013. Um, it's been a, you know, you've been a tremendous ambassador for us. Um, the, you know, Crotal Foundation, been a fantastic partner. Um. But you got to go out onto the relay in 17, was it? That was in 2017, yes. Where did you go? So we, um, we ended up, we started in New York. We started in um, Central Park. Yeah, and, and I should probably yeah. set this for everybody before mm-hmm. you, you start there. So the, you know, for those who aren't aware, our relay is basically about uh, bringing awareness. And, it, and it's, like the, um, it's like the Olympic torch. I mean, we start in now five different locations, I think, this year. Um, and it's just a tributary of, of trails down into Dallas where we kick off the actual uh, Memorial Day event. So you went out on the East Coast relay and started in central New York, correct? We started in central New York, yes. Okay. Center, and, central Park, I should say. Right. Uh-huh. And we uh, made our way down to where, uh, I guess it's J.P. Morgan Chase buildings. Uh-huh. Um, where we met up with a um, large group of people from Chase. and um, they're, they're always so good about coming out and supporting. Yes. And then we walked from, I was just say, when we started at, at um, Central Park, mm-hmm. we were on a bus. And then we caravaned down to uh, Chase, mm-hmm. uh, where we met up with about, I don't know, three, 400 people from Chase. And then we walked from there down to Ground Zero. And um, now they have those, I guess they're reflective, reflection pools, whatever. Mm-hmm. They, I'm not sure what yes. they call those. But we're down there, and it was so quiet and so serene. 
down there. I mean, and you know, New York, we're in, we're, we're in Manhattan. And so if you've ever been to New York, you know how loud and busy it is. Yes. But when we were down there, it just was quiet, serene. There was peace. There was absolute peace there to where, what, um, 16, 15 years earlier, there was chaos. Yes. So, um, um, that was extremely eye-opening. Um, we went there. Um, and of course we left there and we ended up over in Philadelphia, um, and over at, um, by where the Liberty Bell is. Okay. So that was a wonderful, that whole thing, that whole experience was, it was wonderful. It was inspiring. Um, it was motivating. It really is. I, 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 you know, I, I use the word, um, well, I use the emotion of hope. It gives you, you know, there's, there's so much negativity out there, but there are so those are just the people who are loud because the majority of people who aren't as loud, there's some good people in this country. There's some really good people in this country. And when they, the people that see what we do with that relay and that take the time to stop and say, Hey, what are y'all doing? And you tell them. And they just, I mean, I remember there was a guy and I don't, I don't, I don't remember where it was. This guy pulled up in his car and I, I think he lived out of his car and it, and it was, it was a mess. And so if you look at it by an appearance, this guy had nothing. And what he had was trashed by most people's standards. And he said, uh, what's going on here? And we told him and he reached into his back seat and pulled out, I don't know how much money, but it probably would have gotten him to the next gas station, you know, which was a lot of money based on, on appearance. And he didn't even think twice. And he said, y'all are doing good things. And when you see things like that, when you witness things like that, and I'm sure you did, it does, it gives you hope. And it, yeah. to me, it helps drown out the bad that's just so elevated every day because they're loud enough. So to piggyback off of what you just said uh, um, about that, uh, walking from um, Midtown, mm-hmm. I guess that's Midtown, where Think we so, were, yes. down to Ground Zero, uh, people were stopping us and saying, well, hey, what are y'all doing? Y'all protesting? What are y'all protesting? Isn't that crazy that that's right. their first thought? Right. Because they said in New York, when they see a large group of people marching, they're protesting. And uh, and if you when we were down there, the sanitation people were on strike. so And they were out protesting. So um, when we would tell people what we were doing, we started picking up people walking with us. That's and, awesome. And some would walk to a point, and then it stopped, and then others would walk all the way down to um, Ground Zero with us. And um, they were super excited, and some said they wanted to do it again the following year. And that's kind of how I felt when I did it in 2013 for the first time. And I had a team of, total of us of 10. And the following year, I did 50. In the year of that, I kept adding more and more to the pot. And, um, you know, each year, you know, the times after it's over with, you know, you're tired, you're exhausted, but you feel a sense of gratification and you want to recuperate. But then when it kicks off the following year, you start, it starts to pick up steam and you become more inspired. People have no idea how energizing that is to a gold star family member or the Crodles. I mean, Mr. Crodle, when I've, you know, one of the first times I met him, the appreciation 
that was in his eyes. Um, I'll, I'll never forget it. I know everyone who is a part of the family and extended family felt the same way. But, you know, as a father, I could not imagine losing my son before I left this world. And so just watching his reaction and seeing how heartfelt his reaction was, that we still cared and we still appreciate that his son put his life ahead of others. That's, I mean, that's what carry the load is all about. And it, it is very healing. You know, you talked about that earlier. You, you, you needed to heal. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I was really glad to hear you say that because that's, whether we set out with that intention or not, that's become the byproduct. And it's just it's just nice to to be a part of something like that. Yeah, and so you know, Mr. and Mrs. Crodel, um, they're no longer with us anymore. Uh, we lost Mr. Crodel last was it last year? I can't remember. I did not know that. Yeah, Mrs. Crodel, we lost her the year before in twenty, and then we lost Mr. Crodel last year, I believe. I, I did I, not know that. Yeah, um, I'm pretty sure it was last year. This COVID has really thrown my timeline off. Yeah. Um, but the foundation was um inspiring for them because it, it kept their son's legacy alive. And, and that's one, and, and certainly through care to load, you know, we're able to grow our foundation and keep the legacy of Lieutenant Claude Crowell alive. Um, and what he meant, not just to the department, but to people, because he was a very strong family man and he had a strong sense of community. And so, uh, with that, and one of the things we do is that, you know, we give scholarships out. So we're giving multiple scholarships every year you know, um, to those um, who probably wouldn't have a chance to go to college, um, not say every one of them, but certainly some of those that probably don't have the means. And then we also started a couple of years ago, we started a special needs scholarship. Because listen, we, don't, we don't want to forget about, um, you know, those families. And we have mm-hmm. uh, firefighters who have children with special needs. And so now we have that scholarship going as well. That is awesome. Y'all are doing great work. Right. And that helped. All of that, what we were doing, um, helped the Crowles heal. Air to load, Crowell Foundation, uh, our fire family, all helped them to heal. Do you miss it? Fire department? Yeah. Oh, of course. What do you miss about it? Oh, man, the family, the camaraderie. Um, always uh, tell people all the time that, the fire department is the largest family in the world. There's nowhere we can't go where we meet firefighters and we sit down and we can commune with each other. There's, like I said, one of the things that Lieutenant Crowell and I used to do in the morning is we'd sit down and we'd have conversations over coffee. But we have a kitchen, big long table like this, seats around it, we eat dinner, we commune, we talk, we discuss things, we argue. But in the end, we're family. So police department, <clears throat> fire department have a pretty healthy competitive spirit. Oh, yeah. Um, I know a few that would probably um, uh, contradict what you just said, and they would say that they are the largest family in the world. I tell them to prove it. <laughs> yeah. I tell them to prove it. 
because we lived together a third of our lives. 33 years, a third of my 33 years, I lived with these guys. I eat, drank, and slept with these guys. Yeah, and, and mm-hmm. when you talk about eating, I mean, because that's a good point. Yeah, yeah. That's, 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 a, that's a really, really valid point. Um, but you were also, you, you did a lot of the cooking, didn't you? I did all the cooking you for... You did all the cooking. Let's see, I'm going to say, I, 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 when I was a paramedic, I didn't cook as much because I was always on the, uh, on the ambulance and we were mm-hmm. going quite a bit. Ambulances are super, super busy in the city of Dallas. Uh, when I was not on the ambulance, on my days off, because we don't ride the ambulance every single day, I would cook. And then mm-hmm. when I actually cycled out of the uh, rotation of being a paramedic, I became the full-time cook at the fire station. Okay. And so I did that. Uh, What's your about, go-to meal? Was my, oh, <laughs> chicken. Yeah? Fried chicken, mashed potatoes, and gravy. Oh, That's what the, That was one of the first meals I learned to cook at the fire station because if you do not have enough meat, if you do not have a good carb, you're going to get roasted. Okay. <laughs> so, okay. And trust me, I there was a, uh, I'm going to be nice, I'm going to say it was a learning curve. And I remember some of the agitation, and some of the agitation wasn't so good, that I put some meals on the table that were not fruitful. So they, they That's just a good sat way of there. It. <laughs> you said they sat there? No, um, um, I distinctly remember. Um, they were consumed with this thing? And uh, <laughs> uh, I, I called it a garden chef salad. And one of my coworkers, who's a really good friend of mine, by the way, he said, I'm going to tell you what I think about your garden chef salad, which is no meat was in it, right? So um, he made him a big plate of it, and he slathered it with dressing, and he walked over to the trash can, and he dumped the entire plate he did with not. the food and the fork into the trash can. He said, this is what I think about your garden chef salad. So oh I learned. That's brutal. Oh, it was very brutal. And trust me, I was angry. <laughs> I was angry. <laughs> was he just trying to get a rise out of you or was no, he having he was a bad not. day? He was not happy because he wanted meat. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so, and, um, I ended up standing on top of the kitchen table and daring him to come at me. <laughs> That's when everybody kind of steps in and says, oh, oh all right, easy big boys. And trust oh. me, we were two big guys. Oh my uh, gosh. This guy was a former running back at the university of Tulsa. Oh really? And he could run over. He could run through a brick wall back in the day. And you so, said, "I'm I'm a former defensive lineman in safety, so let's let's get this out in the open." Yeah, right I now. probably would have lost that battle though, because oh, yeah? he he at that point he outweighed me then. So, but uh, yeah. So, um, so who cooks at home? You or your wife? I'm, I I do. Um, my wife doesn't cook, not wow. much. But so yeah. she doesn't watch this part of it. Yeah. Oh, trust <laughs> me, she will, and she knows it. So, yeah. So. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So. Chef as well, man. Yeah. You've got uh, you've got almost that that little bit of what's that? What was that guy's? Uh, uh, oh gosh, I'm gonna screw it up, so I won't even go there. Just you got all you got your hand in like a little Renaissance type thing. I mean, you, oh, you, you, you firefighter, chef. I mean, you got you got it all going. You play football. I'm not an idle what person. Else? What else? What else would we? What else would we find interesting about Milton? Oh, I like to write. You like to write. I used to want to be a writer. I was that I was actually before I started drafting or drawing an architect, if you will. Okay. Uh I wanted to be a writer. So I would write. Okay. And so um um I thought I was gonna be a poet when I was a kid. I think that's probably to get the girls though. 
But um, yes. So yeah. So I would write in the you know um, English was my best subject. Okay. So um, but I write and I you know I like to tell small stories. You know I wrote for the school newspaper, um, whatnot. So. Okay. Yeah. So can I assume you're a reader as well? Oh yes. What's the last What's the last book you read? Or what do you read? Oh now? wow. How to make a good brain great. That's the last book I've read. How to make a good a good brain great. How to make a good brain great. great. Yeah. Interesting. Now I can't tell you who the author is because um, that's been a while since I've actually read an, an actual book. But now I read most of my stuff. I read online. Okay. Yeah. So. Yeah, boy, you can yeah. get you can get caught in that in that yeah. trail. Oh yeah. Yeah, but that was the last book. Um, um, I've, of course, you know, there's other books like The Purpose Driven Life and. Uh, all of John Grissom's novels, I love. Oh yeah, I love yeah. suspense like that. Okay, you know, courtroom drama, you know, detective novels, you know. So Scott Turow and John Grissom and uh, what's the guy from Hunt for Red October? Um, Tom Clancy. Tom Clancy. Oh yeah, those books, man. Those books were just they would just drive me to read more and more and more. And so, um, yep. Um, well, those are I, two good ones. I, I read yeah. a lot of their stuff. Yeah. But I got into that book, How to Make a Good Brain Great, uh, great because um, uh, my wife would tell me all the time, she says, oh, you're losing your mind. You need, to, you, know, you need to start reading more. You need to read more something to strengthen your brain. So I got into that one. Oh, I made a comment like that to my wife. She didn't take it quite as well as you took that comment. <laughs> oh, believe me, I didn't take it well. My kids, yeah. my kids will still poke the bear about, yeah. that, about the comment. That I, I don't even remember exactly what it was, but, yeah. but I, I made a comment about, you know, hey, you know, what are you doing for your brain or something like that? Yeah. And man, it was taken the wrong way out of context. So, yeah. well, let, let me ask you uh, one final question here. Actually, that's a lie. I got two more. Um, how do you describe carry the load to people? When somebody says they see your shirt and they go, Hey, what's, what's that all about? How do you describe it to them? So, um, for me, I tell them, um, that is an organization that is, healing the United States are bringing back the true meaning of Memorial Day. Mm. And I said, you know, there's a lot of us, we never, you know, and myself as well. Memorial Day was a day of celebration. You know, but, but what are you celebrating? Oh, well, we're celebrating barbecue. It's time to eat. It's time to drink. And um, nine years ago, I realized it was more than just that. It was about remembrance, about the those that sacrificed. And trust me, uh, Vince Davis died in 2011. I'm sorry, forget that. He died in 2002. Mm-hmm. I get these dates mixed up sometimes, but um, February the 11th, 2002. He died. Well, there was a whole group of firefighters on the department who never knew Vince Davis, doesn't know his story, doesn't know that he was an Olympian, doesn't know he was a father, husband, um, and a dedicated man to this country. So I keep his spirit alive as well. And I tell, I, I, as a matter of fact, don't care a little, I carry his name as well and everywhere I go, you know, at that time. And not only that's just that, but just, Throughout the day, so bringing it back full circle is that um, I explain to people that we are remembering those who gave all. Yes, 
and we need to continue to remember them long after anything that we're doing. So when I ask you the question, who are you carrying? It's pretty simple to answer. And that would be Vernon Davis. That would be Lieutenant Vincent, Todd Vincent, Vincent Davis, Davis. Uh-huh. and Lieutenant Todd Crodel. Lieutenant Todd Crodel, um, Scott Tanksley, Lucky Harris, um, Stanley Wilson, um, Chris Pham, and I can name a few others, but those names are the ones that stick out in my head right now. And these are the guys that um, that we lost over the last uh, ten years or so. Well, Milton, thanks for thanks for spending some time with me. I enjoyed it. I, I did too. I did too. I learned a couple of things about you that I that I didn't know, and uh, uh, especially the poet. You'd be a poet laureate, huh? <laughs> yeah, that one. All right. Thanks, man. Thank you. <laughs>